It's good to be here. I am thankful for the opportunity to speak. I was messing with Cody a little bit. I'm not, I'm not sure how thankful I am for the assignment itself, uh, but for the chance to address this and to encourage us as ministers of the gospel of Christ and also as uh, concerned members as we attend to the needs of those uh, within the flock with which we worship. Uh, what we have at hand this hour is very, very important and perhaps many times a neglected idea. I'm thankful for this workshop, and I'm thankful for this congregation. I'm thankful for the school. We continually ask for your prayers on behalf of the work that goes on here, and uh, proud of the men and women that are turned out of these halls and are standing in pulpits and filling pews all over our brotherhood, and uh, this school is doing a great work, and we appreciate all of the effort put forth uh, by students and instructors and directors alike uh, to make that possible. You know, there are some things that just naturally go together. That when we say one, we, we all automatically think of the other or we say the other. A hand and a glove, right? Summertime and, and homemade ice cream. Austin and unbearable traffic. They're just things that go hand in hand. Preaching school and coffee. Lots and lots of coffee. Some things just fit together. And when we say the words church and family, they go hand in hand. Now, part of that reason is because the church is a family. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue today. And I know as we continue throughout this weekend, you can't help but see the parallels and and look at the biblical uh, imagery as they overlap between the family and the home and the family and the church. But what I mean by that is the fact that they go together is we often say something like this, The church will only go as far and only be as strong and only be as faithful as the families that make it up. And so in essence, what we're saying when we make that statement is that the church needs families. And I would agree with that. I think that's the the overall purpose and intention behind this workshop this weekend and the the lessons that have been uh, given, the assignments that have been handed out and and those that will deliver them It's because we realize that the future of the Lord's church and the locations where we labor depend almost solely on the investment and maturity of the families that make it up, whether they're conventional or unconventional, traditional or or non. It, It depends on that. But I want us to think for just a moment, by way of introduction this morning, that not only does the the church need families, but friends, families need the church. They absolutely do. To, to, To imagine trying to be a Christian family without, in the home, without a Christian family to depend on at church or with the church is, is, is almost unimaginable. You know, I was going to make this statement that this isn't the first time in, at Arise that we have spent all weekend dealing with the family, but it's not the first time that Arise will have benefited our families, is it? We're stronger because of, of the days that we've spent here over the course of the last few years. I know that because last night, we got home from, from listening to Wade and, and singing together, and, and our 19-year-old came in, and, and we were sitting there. I was looking over my lesson for today, and she started to tell me about her conversation with Mike Bonner. Now, he, she didn't necessarily go and, and say, Mr. Mike, I'm having these struggles, and I don't know about what, I, what I'm going to do. He took time to ask Ashlyn, what are your plans? What are you doing? Are you going to school? And then proceeded to invest in her for, I don't know, the way she told the story, it was a half hour. It probably wasn't that long. It was probably, probably ten minutes, five minutes. 
Because my family needed that. And they, and they got it because the church brought us together and made us a family. And so I would encourage us to, to make sure that we understand both sides of that coin. The church needs families, but our families need the church. And we don't need to distance ourselves when things don't go our way. We certainly don't need to, to bail out when we feel like our family isn't like everybody else's family. Because in actuality, although I know we're not talking about necessarily families that struggle, although we will talk a little bit about that, talking about unconventional, there, there's not a family I don't, that I know of that is exactly what it wants to be at all times. And, and we do a pretty good job of putting on a facade and, and of dressing ourselves up when we go out into public and people looking at us saying, well, that family's got it all together. And my family doesn't. The truth is we all need each other from time to time. We all need to be reminded and corrected and encouraged to be the people that we should be. When, when we speak of family, it, to some it brings a smile. Wade talked about that last night. It brings a smile to our face. But to some, to mention family brings shame. To every one of us, when we hear family, we should be resolved. We cannot, friends, we cannot afford to get this wrong. We can't afford to miss it. We can do some other things. We we can mess up a recipe or or, or we can make a wrong turn and end up at at a wrong place. We can oversleep and be late for work. This is about eternity. And it's not just about where I will spend it or where you will spend it. It's about where those children and grandchildren and and, and nieces and nephews and, and those from the community, where they will spend eternity. This is a matter of great significance, and so we should be a people of resolve. Our subject for this hour deals with the church and the unconventional, non-traditional, non-nuclear family, whichever of those definitions might help you. I don't know, I, I don't know the percentages, but I know at least for now, it's greater than it's ever been, that non-traditional, unconventional families make up our membership. Uh, There may have been a time where the majority of families had a mom and a dad and children at home, and maybe even within the same congregation had grandparents that worshipped there and aunts and uncles that worshipped there. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've preached in congregations, one particular congregation that, that was made up of primarily two real big families, 150 members or so, but there was two, pretty much two families that were there that made it up. And there was a sense in which Everyone fit because everyone knew the backgrounds and, 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 and concepts of, of what had gone on, and no one felt, felt out. But when you go into the more urban areas, and, and you get away from the, the rural, family-driven congregations, you get into a, a scenario where a number of those families that make up that membership that sit in those pews are unconventional. It's not mom and dad. It's mom or dad. It's grandparents, as as Cody mentioned, with their their grandchildren. It's it's, it's young people converted whose parents are not members of the Lord's church. It's parents that are still worshiping and their kids have gone astray, no longer attending and are not faithful to the Lord. It's widows and widowers who are trying for the first time after 30 or 40 years to to, to make it in life without the person that, that... to borrow a, a, a term that, that completed them, that, that made life from the day-to-day worth living. And they sit and they listen to sermons and they hear announcements and, and, and maybe they fade into the background and we maybe, hopefully not, question their faithfulness and their effectiveness when really they're lonely. 
Because that's what they did together as a family. That's when the husband and wife sat together, and that's, they went to fellowship meals, and they attended gospel meetings, and now they don't have that person. They don't want to go. And so instead of ministering to their needs and their loneliness, we preach to them about faithfulness and shake our, our heads at them as to why they won't do that anymore. Unconditional families need ministering, mentoring, and loving, and concern. And I hope today that we can address that as we consider these matters. I want us to do a couple of things and what that means is that a lot of points, we're just going to break them down into two sections. First of all, I want us to, to, to make, have some considerations. This, this really is background, laying the groundwork. And then I want us, at the conclusion of those observations, I want us to be watchful for four things, okay? Here are the observations. Number one, we need to make a distinction. Okay? We need to start by making a distinction. Maybe it's already been made. If you listen to, to what Cody said before I got up, if you've paid attention a little bit to what I've said so far, uh, there's a distinction that needs to be made. There's a difference between a non-traditional family and a non-biblical family. There's a difference between a family in sin and a family that's unconventional. Okay? We're talking about situations, again, where a grandparent is raising a grandchild, not to where you have two moms or two dads. Now, those types of families need ministering, too. And they need preaching, and they need teaching, and they need love, and they need compassion, and they need someone to be bold with them, but that's not our subject. For the hour, it's not about unbiblical families. It's about non-traditional families. Maybe, maybe the difference would be if you want to think about it. When it comes to church leadership, you know, God's ideal for the church is to have plurality of elders in a local congregation. That's God's desire. And then there is the potential, I suppose, for being and, and I've borrowed a term from someone else to be scripturally unorganized. That is, that we don't have elders because we don't have men that are qualified. But then there is a step further where you go and you appoint one man as the pastor. Or you set up a, a hierarchy to, to rule. Now that would be an, a, a non-biblical, an unbiblical approach to leadership, whereas the other would simply be incomplete. It wouldn't be the ideal. It wouldn't be if, if things were like they ought to be the way it should be, but it wouldn't be a sinful arrangement. Those are the families we're talking about for the most part this morning. Um, particularly for the people we're ministering to, they're not the ones that cause the issue or cause the problem. They're just trying to make the best of a situation. Again, single parent because of divorce, parental abandonment, drug and alcohol abuse, widow or a widower, someone who, who is converted and their spouse doesn't come along. Those are the unconditional families that we're, we're thinking about. What, what's the point? The point of making this distinction is, is that those families need to be loved and they need to be served. I think it's why the Lord revealed to us, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, that the Lord's church is a family. I was going to say this to the end, but sometimes preachers don't make it all the way there, particularly when they're put on a, on a time limit and only have a certain amount of time to get it done. So I'll say it now. No matter what the state of your family is, if you are in God's family, that's worth it all. Okay? There is no unconventional in the family of God. If you belong to him and are part of his family, that's what matters. And that's why these things are so important. So let's make that distinction. Number two, let's make an observation. And here's where it might, might blur the line a little bit in that distinction we just made, all right? Let's make an observation. Some families are unconventional on the inside, but conventional on the outside. They give the facade. They have the father and the mother and 2.5 children. They, they look like the world it thinks they're supposed to look. But inwardly, internally, they don't function that way. 
Mom brings the kids and dad stays home. Dad drops the kids off on Wednesday night and he and mom go out to eat. He comes back and picks them up. Now, from a, from a perspective of who's married to who and, and who lives in the home and functions from day to day, they're a traditional family. They're a nuclear family. They would fit that, that qualification as, as demographics go. But from a spiritual perspective, they're not traditional at all. Maybe mom and dad, one isn't a Christian. Maybe they're simply not faithful. Maybe children, as they all attend, suffer emotional abuse in that home. Perhaps even physical or sexual abuse in that home that's supposed to be a Christian home. Television, YouTube, and and Apple products are the instructors and mentors of those children, not mom and dad. That's not conventional, not according to the biblical standard. And yet they fill our pews. Kids are forced by the decisions of their parents to believe that baseball, vacation, rest, and pretty much anything else in life is more important than spiritual investment. That's not a biblically traditional family. That's not the way God intended it. And yet sometimes those individuals make up our pews. By the Bible definition, we should be committed and faithful. And so there needs to be at least that observation, that understanding that that as we minister to families, sometimes the unconventional nature of them lies behind the surface, and we still have an obligation to them. And then, number three, let's make it an admission. And this is the difficult part. Let's admit to the fact that sometimes we fail in ministering to these families. Maybe even fail miserably at approaching them. I don't want to stand today and speak for every congregation that's represented here. I really don't want to stand and tell you the shortcomings of the congregations that I've worked with, uh, of the leadership in those congregations, and of the preachers in those congregations, and dealing with families that are non-traditional and unconventional. So I won't do that. It's It's not a confessional time. But I would ask us as we prepare our sermons and, and develop the thoughts for our Bible classes, do we take into account the totality of the types of families that make up our congregations? Something as simple as preaching on Father's Day and Mother's Day. What do we do? Well, we highlight the, the, the importance of, of having a godly mother and what her qualities are, not realizing that there are a whole host of people in that congregation that they, those kind of sermons cut them to the core. Because this may be the first Mother's Day they spent without mom. And that hurts them. Or they didn't have a mom like that. Or they're not a mom like that. And, and they've repented, but now their children are grown and that's a relationship they, they can't seem to fix. I know it fills a calendar spot, right? And it addresses the, the social norms of our day. But it may not be what's best for our congregations. Same as Father's Day. What about when we preach about the sanctity of marriage and the beauty of it and the value of it? Do we ever complement that with a sermon about the power of singleness in the Lord's church and what the Apostle Paul said about those matters and how that some might even choose to remain single and not get married and yet our sermons on on, on the power of marriage and the purpose of marriage and God's intention may leave them believing that they don't really have a place in God's family until they found that spouse. When, when in reality, the Bible says something drastically different about that. What about sermons that deal with life after divorce? And not just sermons about God's law for marriage and divorce. Because someone's going to be in that spot. And that reminder that, that their marriage maybe didn't end for the right reason, and they know because of that they'll never get married again, and it's forced singleness. And yet all we've done is remind them of the mistakes they've made in the past without giving them any hope 
or potential or opportunity for the future to continue to serve the Lord? Do we balance those sermons out? How about preaching to two income families where mom and dad both work with the reality that the world we live in today sometimes forces that instead of just presenting the ideal where mom can stay home and and doesn't have to work. I'm thankful that my wife can. But to make the assumption that those who choose not to do so because they're materialistic on all accounts is degrading and demeaning to people who are sitting in the pew trying to make ends meet and take care of their families. Do we address that? Do we deal with that? Do we give the caveat and the understanding? I remember the first time that I heard of a congregation having a, and I know the term, so please hear me out, a divorce recovery class. I remember the first time that I saw that advertised, and I remember that, that the first time I heard it addressed in a public forum, it was sort of in a lectureship, not exactly like this format, but the, 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 the idea was being crushed and despised and labeled because that's a liberal approach. It, it fosters divorce. No, what it does is it ministers to those whose hearts are broken. Now, what they said about it, I don't know because I didn't go to those classes. But just for the fact that you would have a class helping people get through the great tragedy of divorce, you know that, that divorce takes, it, it, it said it takes anywhere between four to seven years to recover from the, the, the mental and emotional difficulty of divorce. And yet most people who remarry after divorce remarry within the first three. Where are we at, church? In making sure even someone who has the the, the scriptural right to be remarried has suffered great tragedy and great trauma. They need help and guidance. They don't need a reminder of what God's law is. They followed it. They need help to overcome the difficulty and the, and the abandonment and the, and the distrust issues before they enter into another relationship and bring those issues with them. Even families that are outwardly traditional but inwardly are non-traditional, we usually just preach. And ministry is much more than that. It's involvement in their lives. It's investment in their children. It's, it's, it's understanding their plight. It's, it may be even akin to eating with publicans and sinners at times for the purpose of healing them with the power of the great physician so they can stand holy and complete before him again. Now, with those considerations having been made, four things in the remainder of our time that I want us to watch out for. These, uh, the, the, the difficulty of, of, a, of a lesson like this is that there's not one particular text we can go to. But we're going to go to four. We're going to look for four things. Number one, watch out for footstools. In dealing with with non-traditional, unconventional families, watch out for footstools. Turn to James chapter 2. Look at James chapter 2. Remember, we're talking about the church environment, the family environment, the the collective times when we're together. What do non-traditional families feel like in the way that we talk about marriage and family and, and future and life and divorce and all those things? Well, the situation isn't directly parallel, but James 2 pictures an occasion where you have two types of people come into an assembly, right? Verse 2 says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, Sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down by my footstool. It's not a word that we generally use. If you don't understand exactly what the idea of a footstool is, just notice the number of times in Scripture where it references the earth being God's footstool. 
The point is, God is so great, He's so powerful, He's so mighty, He spoke everything into existence, and He's so powerful, He can just rest His feet on the earth, as if it were nothing, but He's so great. The picture is, you have two different types of people come to the worship assembly, and one is given the chief seat, and the other is put at your feet, at the back, out of, out of the way, because we don't want people to think that's who represent us. Now, we think about who we cater to, and who we advertise for, and who we plan for in the Lord's church, our events, and our activities, and our, our social gatherings, and our Facebook announcements. Who's it for? What are we looking, who are we looking to convert? Well, we want that, that, that middle-class family, right, that has, has the two or three well-behaved kids and the dad that's got a good job and, and the mom that, that, can, that can decorate a classroom. We, we want that, and so that's what we push for. And in the way that we present our works and the way that we present our, our concepts, we give this picture that here are the most important people, and if we need to get anybody else, we go, watch, and it's happened before, even places that I've preached, watch a young family walk in with a couple of kids and watch how people flock to them, to meet them and get to know them, and then let a homeless man come sit on the back row. And watch how someone will go get a deacon and say, I don't know who that guy is, but you need to keep an eye on him during service, especially in the climate that we're in today, right? What's the problem? We've created a footstool is what we've done. Without, without realizing it, certainly not with intention, we need to watch out for footstools. I love the beauty and the image of that parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. He, he goes maybe to even greater lengths to show the, the, the care of, of, of the lost in there than he does the, the next parable in, in the parable of the, of the son. The Bible says that when he found it, verse 5, that he laid it on his shoulders and he rejoiced. He marched back to the 99 with the lost sheep that was there in a place of comfort he, he, didn't, he didn't drag the sheep. He put it in a prime position because it had the most need. It was the most vulnerable. Is there not a lesson there for us? That, that child whose parents are not Christians and they were converted at 16 years of age, what do we do when they miss a Wednesday night service? I'm not saying I know. I'm asking legitimately, what do we do? Is it... Is it to sit them down and teach them about the, 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 the purpose of worship and, and obeying the elders and making sure they're there? Or is it sitting them down and asking them? Because I guarantee you somewhere along the way, there's been an issue at home. I actually know of parents who have forbidden their teenage children to leave because they didn't like them to be part of the Lord's church. We need to minister to those young people. We want them there, right? We, we want them to be a part. That's why we converted them. That's why we taught them the gospel then don't throw them into the category of having a mom and dad that even care anything about them spiritually and expect them to handle it. Be there for them and mentor them and encourage them. Put them on our shoulders. Bear them up. Hold them close. Peter said this in 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have an obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love, then fervently love one another. Here's what Peter's saying. Since you have been born again to love, then love. Since God saved you so you could return love, then do exactly what He saved you to do and return love. That would apply to the, those outside the church. It would apply to those in the church, and it would certainly apply to those in unconventional families. We need to watch out for footstools, number two. And maybe this is interrelated. We need to watch out for millstones. We need to watch out for millstones. We remember the, the passage, don't we? Luke 17, 
In verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Millstone, by the way, was the part of that, that, that grinding process that could only be turned by the power of an animal. You'd have to harness an animal to it to get that, that, that millstone to turn and to grind. You take that and, and put it around one man's neck and throw him into the sea. The, the picture is he's a goner. But it's better for that man than for a man who takes one that deserves to be born on our shoulders and, and, and holds him down. A man who deserves the, the, the chief seat, if you will, and we put him at the footstool. Be careful about millstones. Be watchful for them. Let us be very, very careful. Now, I'll speak a little bit to our youth programs. That we don't make non-traditional families and children feel less than when it comes to the work and activities of the Lord's church. Now, I don't know every answer to this, okay? And I believe we should have things like this. A father-son camp out. Great. But let's keep in mind there's going to be a guy in that youth group that doesn't have a father. Not a spiritual one. So maybe we become that to him. Maybe we preempt even the announcement before it's made because those in leadership should know it's going to be made, right? We know the calendar. Hey, next month there's coming up a father-son camping trip. I I know your dad probably won't go, or if your dad's gone, I know you don't have a dad now. Can I go with you? Your car, your money, your investment, and invest in that kid. It's not that we have to have something that always speaks to the inclusion of non Conventional. We want to honor and cherish the families that, that have done it right. And, and, and we don't want to minimize that. But we don't want to leave anyone in the dust either. I've had people before say, and I probably have shared the sentiment at times in various ways, that the true youth ministers in a local congregation are the parents. And I think anyone who's done youth work knows that it rises and falls with the involvement of the parents, certainly. But we, sometimes we say that to the exclusion of appointing someone to care for our kids and to arrange activities for them and even maybe to hire someone and bring them in because they all have parents. But friends, that's not actually true. They all don't have parents. And so if we don't bring someone to help, if we don't appoint someone to the congregation, then we should, and I believe better, take it upon ourselves, our budget, our money, our cars, our heart, and invest in them. Watch out for millstones. Number three, watch out for counterfeits. Probably should be better said this way, watch out for false claims. I'm not asking us to find who the counterfeit is. I'm wanting us to make sure we're not one of them. Look back at the book of James for a moment. Look at James chapter 1. And for me, this is where it became real. In the preparation for these thoughts and the ideas put together to have something to present, this is where it became real for me. James says in in 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, you may have another translation that says, if any man seemed to be religious. I don't know which contextually is the better translation, but I think both of them illustrate what James is trying to say. If anyone thinks you're religious, or if you think yourself to be religious, be careful. Because you might be presenting the externals of religion and not the internals of it. He goes on to say that that man, if he believes himself to be religious and doesn't bridle his tongue... He deceives his own heart, and his religion is worthless. Literally, that word religion, his outward expression of religion, his songs, his service, his, his prayers, they're worthless because inwardly he's not what he ought to be. 
So what ought he be? That's the next passage, right? Pure and undefiled religion. In the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The true test of whether or not my, my religion is a facade or the real deal is how I treat two groups of people. The orphans and the widows, do they not comprise, by definition, most of the unconventional families in our congregations? The orphans and the widows? You know, it is possible, in fact it's highly probable, that our churches have orphan children whose parents are still living and widowed spouses whose spouses are still living. Because mom and dad don't care, husband and wife, one or the other isn't faithful, isn't a Christian. And I believe what we do for those orphans and widows is just as important as what we do for physical orphans and widows. And whether we invest in them or not. My claim is not enough. If you go back up a few verses, this verse was mentioned earlier this morning. If you go back up a few verses in James chapter 1, I believe you're going to find the heart of the, of, of the book itself. It is the consistency and, and perfection of God. God is called the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The point is, God's consistent. Whatever God is, God is completely that. If God is love, He's completely love. If He's just, He's completely just. And what we're called to be is not heroic. It's not supernatural. What we're called to be is consistent like God is consistent. That's why in James 1.26, He says, don't say you're religious and, and not be. Don't claim to be a part of something and not be a part of something. If you're going to show the externals of religion when everybody's looking, then you be the mentor to that child when no one else is around. And you check on those widows and orphans when no one else will check on them. And when the limelight's not on you. That's the true measure of it. Watch out for false claims. Then, finally, number four. I'm going to have to create a word, not necessarily create a word, but where we don't generally, we generally use it this way in plurality. Watch out for Timothys. Not every Timothy. Um, and I love that they're all sitting this close to me this morning. Um, be careful for Timothys. Be watchful for them. So here, here's the positive side of all of this. So we meet a man, a young man in Acts 16 who the Bible says his mother was a believing Jew, but his father was Greek. Now, we're not told exactly what that means for his home. Some have argued that maybe both were Christians or believers, but that one was a Jew by nationality and one was a Greek. But it seems like the indication is, based on that language of Acts 16, that one was a believer in God and the other wasn't a believer in God. That is further revealed to us, I believe, when we read Paul's letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5, when he said that the sincere faith you have first dwelt where? In your grandmother and in your mother. You notice what he didn't say? Nothing in there about dad or granddad. It seems to me that Timothy was a part of an unconventional family. And somebody took time with him. And taught him. And reminded him. And chastised him. And wrote to him. And trusted him. And Timothy now stands as, at least it seems like, as a beacon and a representation of godliness and faithfulness. When I wonder what his story would have been had Paul not saw something in him. 
that he saw he could make a difference with. There's a book, and I would recommend it to you. I wouldn't recommend everything about it. A book called Fathered by God by John Eldridge. If you're a, a father or a, a preacher and how you mentor, it's called Fathered by God. And he talks in that book about, about unfinished men. And sort of the premise is this. is the reason we have, as Carl talked about last hour, the reason we have this issue with boys not becoming men is because the boys never became men and now they're raising the next group and they've only gone so far in their upbringing. And so his idea is here are some ways in which we haven't grown up as men. Let's grow up as men. Let God father us so that we can father somebody else. It's a powerful book and it has a lot of, of great insight into, into the, the developmental concepts in, 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 in the human mind, particularly the, the mind of men and boys. But I wonder how many unfinished men we have in the Lord's church. And how many of them are unconditional, unconventional, unconventional families? How many of them are that way because they don't have a dad or a granddad, like Timothy didn't have a dad or a granddad? But you know what? That young man whose dad left when he was a baby, who sleeps through Bible class, who becomes a nuisance on youth trips, draws attention to himself or just isolates himself in a corner, you may have a Timothy. You may have someone greater than a Timothy, but you may never realize it. That young girl got pregnant out of wedlock, maybe even from, 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 the, uh, from, from a background of emotional or sexual abuse. You may have a Lydia or a Dorcas on your hands, but we'll never know until we make it a point to minister to those families that seem as if they just don't fit the norm. I told you when we started, I don't have the answers. But I know that our churches will only be as strong as the families that make them up. And that doesn't just include the husband and wife of 2.5 kids. It includes every single family on our membership role, on our picture board, in our directory, in our pews, in our Bible classes, The world's going to say you have to fit this mold or you don't fit at all. And God's family says there's nothing unconventional and non-traditional about a Christian. We all belong. We all need help. We all need encouragement. God give us the strength and the wisdom to minister to those that are not like us for the purpose of bringing him glory and honor.